I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories, stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time and service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. Hi, this is Amy Donaldson, and in this episode of We Happy Few, Jason Comstock and I have a wide-ranging discussion with Kimon Dixon about what it was like to be black, bisexual, and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints while serving in the Marine Corps. Well, my name is Kimon Dixon. I served from July 18th, 2016 till January 31st, 2019. Um... The reason why I joined the Marine Corps, I joined the Marine Corps to challenge myself. also wanted to make a difference. I've always had an angle and feeling towards public service of some kind, and I felt that as an American citizen with all the accolades and opportunities and abilities that we have as citizens, you should give back in some way. Um, I believe that at least one member from every family should serve in some way, whether it's civil service or military service or something because you've been given a free K-12 through education paid by the taxpayers, paid by you through whatever taxes you paid as a worker as well. And you should have some type of service giving back. And the Marine Corps to me was that higher calling because I felt a desire to be a Marine over the other branches, seeing other Marines that came back, seeing my friends that came back from boot camp and how they changed and how it shaped them, how it made them better mm-hmm. and different. And I wanted to be... I wanted to stand out from my other peers. I wanted to come home and be different. People see that change. The teachers see that change in me from the person that they saw as a ninth grader to the person that they saw as a United States Marine. And that's what I wanted more than anything. But you said your family was shocked when you uh, came home and told them you had signed the contract? Yes. So um, my mom... So the recruiter... It's actually kind of funny. Sergeant Martinez was my recruiter. was Staff Sergeant Martinez now. And he... Came to my door on my one day off during my summer before my senior year and came and he was like, oh, you asked for more information on the Marine Corps? I was like, oh, I'm not going to the Marine Corps. And he was like, no, no, just take the package, read over it, look on the website. You know, if you don't want to do it, it's cool. But I know you mentioned that your uncle was in the Marine Corps. And I was like, yes, he's a gunny. And I'll, I'll talk to him or whatever. He was all gun-ho about it. He wanted me to go the officer route. He wanted me to go to school, the ROTC scholarship and everything like that. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I feel like... If you're going to serve, I'd rather be a Mustang than anything else because you have that enlisted experience. And then when you transition as an officer, you're a different type of second lieutenant. You're already going to be battle tested and tested in OCS to be able to lead your peers there because you've already earned the title of Marine. And so they're expecting you to carry that on as a candidate. But it's even more high pressured because you've lived that experience. You know what the grunt work is. So why not do it in a better way? And so my mom was, she was like, hell no, you're not going to the Marine Corps. And so it really took on my part, actually the blessing was Staff Sergeant Gibbons, who was the head of my office, was an African-American from College Park, Atlanta, which is basically like the Compton of, of Atlanta. And she worked in the alternative school district there, the alternative schools, 
there and um, as a counselor because she had got her master's in psychology. And so I was like, you can talk to him. He's been deployed to Afghanistan. He did six tours. He's a MARSOC Marine, a Raider, um, Special Forces, and he's become something. He has his bachelor's degree, and he's choosing between either going back into the Special Forces community as a gunny, Mm -hmm. becoming a warrant officer, or becoming an officer himself. I think that would be someone that you work with these kids on a daily basis. Could you ever see someone like that that you work with, one of those students, achieve the things that he achieved by serving his country? And so she agreed to sit down with him, and he did most of the talking and basically convinced her that this was the best thing for me. Um, he saw a lot of himself in me and that he believed that the Marine Corps would change my life, and it did. So how did it, how did it change your life? Um, it changed my life in the way that I have more of a selfless service-oriented mindset, and I have a more giving heart, and it woke me up. Um, I was a naive dude that thought like, oh, I'm a Marine and I'm the toughest thing in the world and everything like that. Nothing will break me, but it did. Um, things broke me down in the Marine Corps in ways that are indescribable. Like boot camp really changes you because they take you, they break, they literally break you down to where you feel like nothing. And they do really build you back up into the fold and form of what they need as a basic Marine. Then you go to your um, basic school. I went to infantry school and everything like that. And so after all of that, it changed me in a way I didn't care so much about myself, but the mission came first. And so because the mission came first, I don't know, it just made me feel like I was a small piece of history. And that's what I took away from every deployment I went on, every mission I went to, every country I visited every foreign military service member I worked with, um, being in those briefings, being in those national security briefings, I was able to be a small portion of history. Even if we didn't work within those things, if we were sidestepped for somebody else, I still was a part of it. That's still a part of my story. So I think it changed my life in a good way. But there was some challenge um, at the end that uh, really broke me down. Um, well, let's talk about being deployed. Right. Yeah. So you went to Korea, right? Yes. South Korea, and then also the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, so just tell us whatever you want to tell us about those, what you learned from those, mm-hmm. what those experiences were like for you. Yeah. I mean, you're an 18 year old kid when you join. Yeah. You know. So being in those foreign countries, one Philippines were really really hot. <laughs> um, uh, we were there for two weeks. Um, South Korea we were there for a couple of weeks. We did some training, and it was just to get us outside of Japan. Um, the Philippines was a national security um, mission. What I can say is basically we were protecting classified information and special forces units there that were fighting ISIS. Um, that was our main mission. So deadly force was legitimate. It wasn't a, this is training now. It was like a legitimate mission. Um, and I was like the actual first time I was in a real world um, combat type of situation where we didn't know outside of the gates of the parameter that we were holding security onto. We didn't know who were coming to the gates, who wasn't coming to the gates. And that really gave me an experience of I could take someone's life and I could lose my life over pretty much nothing to me, but it was of a bigger understanding. Um, But that also triggers in us the fact that death is not a huge leap. 
we had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Where it's not a huge leap for us because we've become so used to the fact that death is a part of our work life, a part of our life, that having the inclination to take your own life is not beyond us. And I think that's the real failure of our leadership, our leadership in the military, is that they say on paper and to reporters, oh, we're here for our Marines, we're here for our airmen, we're here for our soldiers, our sailors, our Coast Guardsmen. But as soon as you speak up and say, I have these challenges, I have these issues, they kick you out. They give you that little bit of, you know, boost up. Some little psychiatrist will come and help you a little bit where they can fit you in. They don't really help you with the process of the VA or understanding that process at all. And then they just give you your honorable discharge certificate and say goodbye. Because it used to be that if you had a suicide attempt or you had suicide ideations, you got a general discharge and you were kicked to the street. No benefits, nothing, no veteran status. You were just... I spent four years and I got nothing out of it. Um, you know, we, you and I did talk about, mm-hmm. uh, and I've talked about it with a few other of the, of people who told their stories on here, that once you get comfortable with the idea that you could die is actually kind of freeing. Yeah. Like you feel better. I mean, mm-hmm. we just described that you and I talked, we were yeah. running. Yeah, so we were running. For anybody listening to this, Kimon and I met in a park Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with a few veterans groups mm-hmm. that had gotten together for a run to raise awareness about suicide. Yeah. And I mentioned this to you mm-hmm. and uh, you said, well, I, this is, you know, I tried to commit suicide. And yeah. I said, well, then you should come and run with me. Yeah. And we've been friends. No. Yeah, <laughs> since then, yeah. Um, so, for me, and I'll tell a little bit of one of my sergeants, Sergeant Morales, Gabriel Morales. He's still in the Marine Corps right now. Um, he battles with critical depression as a as a sergeant, active duty in the Marine Corps, still deploying and training Marines. Um, me and him are similar in the fact that we had a lot of long conversations while I was standing post in Guantanamo Bay. And we would talk about life and we would talk about death a lot. And... His number one question to me always was, what if there's nothing after this? And I said, well, if there's nothing after this, then I've lived my life to the fullest because we've already accepted that death is coming no matter what. So why not just live? Like, do whatever you want. Skydive, go shooting, go horseback riding. Like, there's nothing really that's going to take away from the life that you had. It's yours. So to hell with everybody else just do what you want to do um because he was contemplating the fact of does he stay in the marine corps or does he get out because the marine corps he joined was the different marine corps that i joined he joined and he went to oc he went to infantry school and then three months later he was in afghanistan so you're an 18 year old kid in afghanistan you have no idea what you're doing but he learned a lot from that deployment and he deployed there twice and so seeing that person that looks 35 when he's only 26 and seeing the pain, seeing the misery, seeing the battles and basically seeing a person, but just be a shell of a person. There's no spirit, no soul in there. It's just darkness and pain and anger and anguish. And that was scary to me. And I turned into that over the course of that deployment. Those three months there was hell. And it wasn't because of him. It was because of people under him that made it that way because they were bored. So they wanted to entertain themselves by hurting others, by making others feel down as a source of entertainment because they were bored with their life. And I let that seep in instead of casting it out 
basically. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. some of the issues you face the challenges i mean there's obvious challenges yeah. of being deployed being right? deployed um, um and, and feeling afraid but also um you know you're you one of the more unique soldiers yes. we've interviewed so yes so i am openly bisexual i've been openly bisexual since i was i think i was in eighth grade my parents were not accepting and they're still not um that was hard that was a part of my rebellious streak to go to the Marine Corps. I wanted to prove to them that I was still a man. I was still somebody. I was, I could still have a full life. Um, I had no faith in testimony of anything. Um, I was just kind of walking around trying to find myself through the Marine Corps. And um, it was advised to me to say something when I got to my first unit because you don't want to... It's different for infantrymen than it is for pokes, for persons other than grunts, Mm -hmm. other MOSs. They have – I've seen a lesbian sergeant go from a lance corporal to a sergeant within two years, which is pretty much unheard of to jump that far in rank, going from E3 to E5 like that. Mm -hmm. But she showed her leadership, but she also got a leg up because she was lesbian. And the Marine Corps is also trying to – they kind of have a double standard. They want you to hinder your sexual orientation in that life but also still represent it in the Marine Corps, and they want to lift you up because of it. But they tear you down at the same time. So they want to use it politically, but they don't offer you any real, real support, support, like emotional support. support. Yeah. And then they um, – and then it becomes like this, you're that other person over there. So I – took the step being stupid and said, Hey, I'm bisexual, told my command, let them know not only for my own protection, but for others protection as well, because there are a lot of closeted people that are in the Marine Corps and in the military in general. So, and I've seen where someone was closeted. The other person was out, accused the person that was out of sexually assaulting them. That person gets kicked out because that closeted Marine is still in the closet so that everyone thinks they're straight. And it's just easier to be like, oh, he came on to me and I feel assaulted. And then now in the era that we live in, you're just kicked out. There's no questions asked. And so that's the hardest thing. So how did your fellow Marines take that? Um, At first I thought it was okay. They made – my platoon sergeant um, said, you know, we don't care, you know – no one cares here, and you're still a Marine as long as you can do your job. And I believed that for the first month. Then it turned into jokes, and the jokes I didn't care about. I was like, I heard faggot, gay, queer for months through boot camp. Like, it did not bother me. I was so 
that word has no connotation to me at all. It's like if someone called me the N-word. It doesn't bother me. So that – the jokes start to happen. Then they'd be like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I'm like, it's fine. Like, I don't care. You can say whatever you want. I'm not going to report you. If I felt offended, I will come to you, tell you in private and say, that offended me. Can you not say that around me again? I'm a big kid. I can tell you. I'm an adult. I can tell you that. Um, so a lot of them felt like they couldn't joke around me, so then they didn't joke around me at all. But when they got drunk, they liked to say things. Um, they alienated me. I had no friends whatsoever. Um, and it, that started to put me in a dark place. That was just on my first deployment. Then the leadership there, some of the other corporals, we had 32 corporals. I don't know about you, but if you have 32 NCOs and only 15 people that are not NCOs, there's a lot of chiefs and not enough Indians. Yeah. So in a platoon of 50, it just became too much. So they're always giving the proper greeting of the day, and they they were never really cool with us. They, they didn't treat us good until we left Japan, and they were leaving, and we were now the senior Marines. Then they wanted to be buddy-buddy with us, and it was like, no, you're being fake. I don't want, I don't want to talk to you. And so they were like, Dixon, you're, you're never going to be able to grow up and do anything in the Marine Corps because you're just so sensitive. And I'm like, I'm sensitive? You're the one that reported me for, and you said that I used my sexual orientation in order to get out of work and responsibility, and that I accused you of that. You said that about me to the command. Now I'm already looked in a dark light like, oh, he's just going to start stuff. And it's you against everyone else. And then, so then I thought, oh, well, second deployment, I'm a senior Marine. I'll have juniors under me. I can be the type of leader that I wanted to have. And so, and it's the toolbox. You take the good and you throw out the bad. Um, I didn't get that chance. Uh, The juniors, without my knowledge, I didn't find out until after I had came back from Cuba that they were told that, hey, watch out for Dixon. He's the faggot. Don't, Don't go around him. And so I, because at first when they first came, no one really spoke to me. They didn't really come around me. So I just didn't know what's up. I thought maybe they're just scared. You know, I don't know. I was scared when I first went to my first unit. I didn't know what was going to happen. Hear all these stories about the infantry. So I was just like, you know, maybe they're just scared. But then I found out there was back layer to it that my peers were saying things about me behind my back. And all I was doing was promoting them for the people that they were to my face. And so in Cuba, there's nowhere to go. You're stuck on Guantanamo Bay. There's just a boat that takes you from one end of the base to the other. And for one week, you're on the fence line. The other week, you're not. The week on the fence line was hell. Every day. It felt like hell. I was cast. I was just completely torn down all the time. Just it, it felt like I was alone. And even when I reached out to even Sergeant Morales, he was like, you know, that's just your leadership. Like he couldn't. What's he going to do? Micromanage everyone every day? He can't can't be there all the time. So it was really like it was on me to figure it out. Um, and that was the hardest thing was trying to figure out. And at a certain point, I kind of just gave up. I was like, I'm done. Like, I literally just told myself, I'm done. I'm done trying. I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to live in this misery until the deployment's over. And it didn't last. One day I just snapped and I took a gun and... I blew a hole right side of my face, and that was it for me. Took me to the hospital, put me in the psych ward. 
for like a couple hours, then released me back to my platoon. They were watching me constantly, had out of a buddy, and then they shipped me back to the States. They gave me some half diagnosis and a three-hour session with a Navy doc who's like, oh, you just have adjustable mood disorder with depression. I have no idea what that means. He's like, it just means basically that when you're put in a new situation, your mood will change and the depression will cease. I'm like, okay. So I went through two deployments and I had two really shitty experiences. And all you're telling me is, is basically that because I wasn't even a worse experience, that that's why I had suicidal idea. That doesn't make any sense. Like I was beat up. I was harassed. I was hazed repeatedly. I was outcasted. I was treated like every day just because of the fact that I was different. Like there, everyone else was treated pretty fine. Yeah, if you messed up, you get punished. I completely understand that. People would rather do physical um, training punishment, like doing PT longer, going on a ruck run, doing that, than doing paperwork against the Marine. Because once you start doing paperwork, then your chances of reenlisting go down, promotion go down. So they rather handle it inside of the platoon than getting the outer leadership involved. You said too, though, that it was. It's also being African American. Yeah. I mean, what was that? What alone? I, I, no, because there's a lot. I think a lot of African Americans see the military as a really good option. Yes. Because it's merit based, mm-hmm. and they feel like, hey. I can, I can be, do I, it. I can earn this. The first African-American female Marine Corps general was just appointed last year. The there. first ever. And, and she's only to, a one star. And that has to make you proud, though. It does make us proud. It makes us proud of that achievement because now one more door has been opened. One more glass ceiling has been broken. But it also shows the reality of that there are no African-American four stars in DOD wide. There's zero. They're all white males or white females. And so that's also a hindrance. There's never been an African-American commandant. There's been an African-American sergeant major of the Marine Corps, which is cool. We've had three. That's awesome. But for someone that's aspiring to be an officer, all they see is limitations. They see after major, just there's... I met two African-American officers in my entire time in the Marine Corps. One was a colonel and the other one was a major. And they were basically at their ends wit with the Marine Corps because it became a political game of favoritism and they never matched up because they just didn't share the same experiences as their white fellow Marines. And we all say we're green, but at the end of the day, you're still judged off the basis of the color of your skin. And the performance that is expected of you is going to be different. You're expected to do better, work twice as hard to get half. You have different hurdles in front of you. You're running the same race, but you got more hurdles to jump. You got more achievements to reach. You have to prove constantly that you're not going to be the up. Now, the white kid, he can f*** up a thousand times. But that's what they expect. Us, they expect more. So you're already a Marine, and the other branches expect more of you. And then you're on top of that, you're a black Marine. And then you're infantry. So then where do you go? You can't go down. You can only go up. And if you go down, then you stay stagnant in one place and you're punished by not getting promotion, not getting the, those leadership bills, not going to those schoolhouses, constantly being overpassed. Oh, he's not going to make it anyways, because statistically you don't make it, but you're not giving that shot to that person. You're just generalizing them. So it's not merit based. It's favoritism based. 
the whole so did, military is. Did you ever have opportunities where you had um, a black NCO or or no. officer? Not at all, ever in your career. No. Wow. So, so statistically, only about seventeen um, percent of all military members are African American, and about seventy percent are white. And so, yeah. And is that historically, or is that that's two thousand twelve? Okay. So yeah. yeah. And then this administration, it was even worse because then you're, oh, if you're not a Trump supporter in the Marine Corps infantry or in the Marine Corps enlisted, in the enlisted Marine Corps, I think I, th- I saw a statistic 20, in 2017, 87% of enlisted Marines supported the president. 87% while the national average for the president at the time was 36% in approvals. I'm a political junkie. I love it. So I know... How the Marine, they like him because he's outlandish, he's brass, he's out there, he speaks his mind. And that's at the core of it. That's what a Marine is. They speak their mind. They don't care who they hurt in between. And that and we're assholes. That's what we are. Because um, that's the environment that we live in. So people like, they see that and they like it. Officers, he had a little bit less of a favorability, but still pretty good favorables. And the other branches, not the same. And that's the difference. Like if you're not... If you didn't, and that's, that was the worst, talking about politics. And I was like, I will never support a five-time draft dodger. I will never support a five-time draft dodger. I will never support someone who said that KKK and white supremacists were fine people, who had no idea who David Duke was, but only a couple months later celebrated him. I won't look at outward racism, turn a blind eye and say, yes, I support this president. Is he the commander in chief? Of course. And I would never say anything while in uniform about him. But if you ask me my personal opinion of him, I'm going to give you my personal opinion. And a lot of officers didn't like that, especially when I started working in the command office after I got back from Cuba and was getting treatment. A lot of politics were talked in. Someone asked me, what's your opinion? And I gave them my opinion. They didn't like my opinion. But I gave it to them. They asked for it. So I would like your opinion. A young man that grew up in the same neighborhood you did comes to you and says, I want to join the Marines. What should I do? I'd say only join the Marine Corps unless you absolutely believe that you should be a Marine. I would never deter anyone from becoming a Marine. Just because of my experience, my experience was mine. That doesn't mean it's going to be yours. It doesn't mean that you're going to have the same experiences I do. I joined the Marine Corps with 16 other people from my, my uh, office. We were the biggest pulley depth drop to ever go to boot camp altogether from the same exact recruiting office. And what city? We it? went in Marietta, Georgia. Okay. And their office, the RSS Kennesaw office, still to this day, for the last 22 years, every, every pulley that they've sent to recruit training comes home as a Marine. They have never sent anyone to boot camp that hasn't come back a Marine. Other offices can't say that. They have streets for a year, two years. Kennesaw, they've had it for 22 years, and they can prove it. And that's what really drove me to their offices over others. I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, your recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like when you realized, um, I'm going to have to leave the Marine Corps. I'm going to have to figure stuff out mm-hmm. on my own. Well, at first it was a fight. I didn't accept the recommendation that the doctor gave. He gave a recommendation that was against me, and I didn't want that recommendation. I said I wanted to stay in. I just wanted to get treatment and figure out and move on. I had heard of other Marines. My sergeant, Sergeant Morales, was suffering through depression and still got to deploy, and he's still active duty today. And I wanted to know why I wasn't given that same opportunity. 
And he basically said that the Marine Corps now sees me as a hindrance to combat efficiency because I was an infantryman and I wasn't eligible for um, be able to switch careers um, for a lateral move that I was kind of stuck. It was either the infantry was going to take the risk, take me on, keep me, send me to another unit and hope for the best, or it would come into the same result or even a worse result. And I actually would commit to taking my own life. And then they would, it'd be like we had a chance to save him and instead we didn't. What's it like to wake up, I guess, and realize that you you tr- you did it and you lived? Because I assume you didn't think you would wake up. I didn't I didn't actually penetrate my skin. Mm-hmm. It just went to the side of my face. Mm-hmm. Um and then I got on the roof and I actually tried to jump and Gunny Penny, my platoon sergeant at the time, um pulled me off the ledge. Um, he talked me off, and I was close. Don't get me wrong. I wanted to die that day. I didn't care about anything, and I was like, there's nothing left for me to do here. My parents hate me. I'm rejected from them. I'm some openly bisexual African-American infantry Marine that happens to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. How am I going to fit in any culture, any group, any circle? I'm I'm tired. I'm done. I've done everything that I've could. I've tried my best. And he told me that I hadn't done my best yet, basically. That I had a whole lot of life to live and I just had to figure it out. And he was like, just take my hand. I took his hand and I cried. And that big 6'4", 245 pound muscled white dude and I just cried for 30 minutes. I just cried. And he told me it was going to be okay. Um, when I saw his recommendation letter for um, re-enlistment, he called me before he submitted it. He said, I'm not recommending you to stay in. I know you want to stay in. I'm not recommending you for it. I talked to Captain Raganis. He's not going to recommend you either. He'll call you later. Um, but for me, this is not the best place for you to get recovered. You're not going to recover here. Um, and I just didn't, ex- I didn't want to, ex- I didn't want to believe that because you continue to be told like, if you reach out and we're here for you, but no one knows the after story and the after story is it's hard. You're out, you're done. The only thing that I had to really fight for was to get an honorable discharge. So I wrote a letter to the commanding officer of the Marine forces command, Lieutenant General Brokowski. He was stationed in Norfolk. So he was right down the street, basically from me. Um, I spoke with JAG. I, spoke with my equal opportunity officer for the regiment. Um, I spoke with my sergeant major of my regiment and my commanding officer. I spoke to a congressional representative and her staff, and they all basically told me no. I said, it's not going to happen. You need to prepare yourself to being out the Marine Corps early, basically. You need to prepare yourself, whether you get an honorable discharge or general discharge, because there is no actual policy in the Marine Corps that states anything about suicide attempt and what are the following actions that come after it. It's up to command discretion. And the commanding officer that does that it was the lieutenant general. And so you're leaving it up to this career Marine to decide your fate. So what do you write in that letter? How do you plead your case? And you're never going to be able to sit there and talk to them. I was never going to get that opportunity. I thought about requesting mass. I thought about 
pulling my congressional right to counsel. I, I did everything that I could. But in the end, I came here for Christmas, came to Salt Lake to see my, my Utah family, as I call them, the Larsons. And in that moment, I decided I was going to prepare to get out. I was done fighting. I just left it to God and prayed about it and said, it's in your hands. Whatever happens, it's supposed to happen, and it's for a reason. I may not know the reason right now, and it may be extremely hard and devastating, but I'll get through it because I had that faith and testimony of it happening. He got me off that ledge. He got me through treatment. Um, the Forskrens got me through treatment. Forskrens is a family that I knew in Virginia. Um, Jay was retiring from the Navy, and he literally helped me through that entire process. He did not accept what the Marine Corps was telling me. He was like, no, you don't deserve a general discharge. It's not your fault that you were treated that way, and it led you to that place. There's no way. No real good commander should ever recommend you for anything like that. And so he was a huge help. They were a huge help in getting me through that. And so Monday morning uh, of the week of January 31st, so it could have been, I think, January 26th, I walked into the office. My first arm pulled me in, and he said, I got your recommendation back. Here you go. Read it, said honorable discharge with an RE4 code, which means I can never re-enlist or commission into the armed forces unless I get a secretary's um, waiver. And I had five days to get out. So I had to get all my things turned in, get all the signatures I needed, um, get all my medical files downloaded and printed, everything done. Not even five days because it came in on Friday, but it came in after working hours. But it's from the time that the letter is posted to the command's email. And so since it came in on a Friday, I technically had four days to get out. So on that last day, I came in in camis for my last day, one of my best camis. Spoke with my commanding officer. He told me good luck. And if I needed anything from the command, don't hesitate to call. And good luck, basically. And I walked off that base as a veteran, and I'm, I don't regret it. Because if I had stayed in, it would have gotten worse. It wouldn't have gotten better, and I would have never improved. I would have met the people that I've met. Um, I would have been on the trajectory that I'm going on. Um, and I think I joined the Marine Corps for the purpose that I was there to do. Um, one of my friends, the Lundells, Ron Liddell, he's a lieutenant colonel, well, a commander in the Navy now. And so he basically was like, the Lord probably had you go into the Marine Corps for this little time. And now what you needed to gain from that experience is up. And this is the way that he's shown that you needed to leave. He's going to take care of you. He's not going to get you out in a way that's going to hurt you. So an honorable discharge allows me to keep my benefits, keeps my education benefits, allows me to start taking the necessary steps to doing what I want to do in this life. And that doesn't mean my service has to end. I can give back in different ways. Um, but it's been hard, yeah. It's been difficult. I've only been out for a couple months. But I'm happy. I think for the first time in my life, I'm actually happy. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, 
please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.